As the lectionary is taking us from old to new, we turn to the New Testament today. So go to Luke chapter 3, verse 7. We're going to do just a few verses through the 18th verse of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, the wonderful physician who did his autoptes, his very detailed report as he went around. He actually, uh, we think, got most of his material from Mary herself. And so it's a a wonderful uh, explanation of Mary's experience of this. I have to admit to you that I've never really understood why people battle the secular world over trying to keep Christ in Christmas. It's not the responsibility of government, and it's certainly not the responsibility of our stores to lift up the name of Christ. That's our responsibility. That's, that's what Christ, Christian is all about. And yet there's a lot of hypocrisy, of course, in business and in government as politicians try to use our faith to try to get us to vote for them or stores just simply try to get us to buy their products in the name of Christ. But that is simply their appropriation of our faith. It's not who we are. Our problem is different from this leaving Christ out of Christmas. In fact, our problem is leaving Christ out of Christianity. And by that I mean that sometimes we turn Christianity and the worship of the risen one into a niceanity, a kind of moral anity, uh, settling on just trying to be nice, moral people. A person uh, that even the secular world would say, yeah, they're great, Uh, they're wonderful, and they would praise who we are. Now, in many ways, that is what John the baptizer was offering to the people just before Jesus came. The greatest of the prophets, Jesus tells us, had a very simple message. That, of course, was difficult to do, kind of like the New Year's resolutions where you try to make yourself a better person. But it didn't require any savior. It didn't require crucifixion. It didn't require resurrection or surrender or obedience or discipleship to the one God was sending, the one who came at Christmas. And thus, very appropriately, John says, in effect, what I teach isn't even worthy of being the strings on your shoes let alone the shoes that you wear to follow Jesus. So we want to go to that moment in the Advent season where, in fact, John the baptizer is preparing the people for the coming of the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God. Today is the third Sunday of Advent. Christmas now is only over a little week or so away. So let's prepare ourselves for this moment. So Luke chapter 3, we're going to start with the 7th verse and go through the 18th. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from this coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God could raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. 
John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, What should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, And what should we do? He replied, Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Now keep that open before you. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that it's easy for us to dilute our faith. Our world wants us to. In a whole host of ways, they want us to not be followers of Christ, but followers of them and their way and their goals and their dreams. Help us. Help us recognize why Jesus came and the transforming power that he offers to us. Help each one of us to, to not just be practicing a religion, but to be indeed transforming new birth relationship with you. We're open before you now. Speak to each of us very personally. In Jesus' name, amen. Both in the New Testament and throughout the life of the church in these 2,000 years since Jesus was born, we tend to err in the Christian faith in one of two ways. We either define our Christian faith by our works and we become Christians who are only kind and just and righteous. Or, on the other extreme, we define our Christian faith by God and His truth, by our theological tenets, our mental constructs. Thus, over the years, we have a tendency as a church to be only on one side or the other, only concerned with the poor and with justice and with compassion, and we put our faith in, into action. Or we emphasize then, well actually in that side, we emphasize the heart of God. I could give you many labels of, of churches that have fallen into that trap of only being concerned with the heart of God and what God is doing. But the truth is that those labels to talk about them would not be accurate. We're talking about us. We have a tendency as do all Christians, to err in one side or the other. And so we have a tendency to only care about the heart of God. Or on the other side, we have a tendency as the church to put the emphasis on the mind, on truth, on theology. And we then attack those who disagree with us because truth is more important than love. And we sometimes then create the Inquisition. But all the time, no matter what, it's the exclusivity of superiority that that side produces. Thus, it is a struggle 
in your life and in mine and in every congregation between the heart and the head, between action and position, between morality and theology. The answer, of course, and this is true actually in most areas of our Christian faith and, and our walk as persons, it's not either or, it's not these extremes that you discount the other half of the equation, the other side of the coin, but it's both and. True Christianity is heart and head in unity. It is Jesus' love in action and in truth, such that, as Paul says, we truth it in love. It is well-thought-out action based on a solid theological position. It is heart and head in unity. But I explain all that so that we don't get confused with the fact that Christians are to be moral and nice as John the Baptizer is helping us to understand. We are, in fact, to put our love into action if we're going to follow the God who is love and who cares deeply about us. The problem that we're describing today with John the Baptizer is not the two sides of Christian faith that we need to always bring together in this unity of heart and mind, but it's rather the problem of being just moralistic, stopping at that level, not moving on to the spiritual union with God that is based on a truth that is beyond anything that we could have come up with as human beings, for it comes to us in revelation, it comes to us in community, it comes to us through Jesus Christ. One of the, the difficulties of the moral life is that it appeals to us in such wonderful ways that we often stop and don't recognize the incomplete nature of the moral life. Of course, we would rather share the planet with people who are nice and moral and just and fair and tell us the truth and don't lie to us and so on like that. But the faith is not about just sharing the planet with nice moral people. The faith is about a life beyond the planet, a life beyond life, a life beyond this temporary existence that you and I share with the rest of humanity. It's the life that Jesus comes to make possible within us individually and lived out corporately. So we want to look at this transition statement that John the baptizer makes when he takes everything he is saying about doing the right thing and then says, and that's really nothing compared to what Jesus and his Holy Spirit and his refining fire is going to do in your heart and in your life. Everything here, he says, is like chaff. It's, it's what is needed to let the kernel grow. It's chaff. But it's not the chaff that goes on. It's the kernel. It's the, the wheat, the life that is possible through Jesus Christ. John says it this way. I baptize you with water, he says, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now think of the context of that sentence within the teachings of John the baptizer. The moral life that is generous and kind and doesn't cheat or lie, is not greedy, is nothing 
compared to the life Jesus comes to give through his spirit. And all of that is but chaff when the refiner's fire is through with the transformation required so that you and I can breathe the air of heaven and live in the presence of the almighty God who cannot be in the presence of sin. It is a transforming power that is offered to us so that we can live lives that are greater than just being nice people. It's about becoming new people, living truthful love, faithful justice, compassionate grace. It's a wonderful transforming power. So what did Jesus actually do when he came? We're going to celebrate in just a few weeks, and just a few days actually, this wonderful Christmas Eve, Jesus coming. So what did he actually do when he came? Why is John's baptism only one of morality, and why is it only like shoestrings compared to the true shoes that Jesus is going to give, the true being? And why are Christians so concerned with keeping Christ in our Christianity? Well, the answer to that, I'm going to take you back to perhaps one of the most beautiful of the worship hymns that we had in those early days of the church. It's this Christology hymn in Colossians. Now, we don't have time to, to study it deeply. I'm just going to quickly uh, talk about it. But I would encourage you to take time during this, this Christmas season to study the Christology hymn. It is one of the most beautiful pieces of scripture in describing who Jesus is that we have. And so I encourage you as you think about it to think about what does this mean then for me in my life and my family. I'm going to do it just phrase by phrase, just very briefly. The sun is the image of the invisible God. There have been scores of religions and gods that have been created by projecting our human fallen natures on the spiritual world. There is only one way that we can know the true God. And if we project humanity onto the gods as we do in the, the pantheons of the ancient world, there's very disturbing results that happens in amplifying human frailty and difficulty and struggles and conflicts and warring that then we see in the in the eternal realm. Some of the latest movies that speak of the Greek god of Thor and his brother have been built on that conflict of they're just humans in, in projected form. The only way we can know the true invisible one only God is if that God comes and reveals himself in person. Jesus comes so that we might know who God really is, how he really thinks and feels, what he really does when conflict comes, and the power that love is over the sin of this world. For in him, the, the hymn goes on to say, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, including all human rulers and kings and powers, and authorities. Now the implication of this is so vast, I doubt if we could ever actually explore the, the depth that everything exists, not only in its created form, but its sustained form because of Jesus Christ. 
that's a profound statement that changes our whole relationship to everything if it's a creation of our Savior. But simply put, it is this truth. Nothing exists without Jesus bringing it into being and keeping it in existence, sustaining it, as the scripture says. Nothing. It's all chaff. It's all the refiner's fire which goes through and only that kernel of life will continue when the refiner's fire is done. We will be new creatures set for a new heaven and a new earth as we allow God to rebirth who we are. And the psalm goes on, the hymn goes on to say, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now this gets to the very heart of the human experience. The heart of the matter of our faith. Death is the greatest nemesis. Our unrelenting mortality cannot be avoided. It doesn't matter how kind or moral or good we are, we are all going to die. Without Christ, death wins. But Jesus is not only the head of the church, the source and life now, but he's the firstborn from among the dead, the resurrected one, the one who defeated death itself and proclaimed forever that death is not the end, and that it's only the beginning of real life, eternal life, Ionian life, the life that God lives. It's only the beginning of existence. And this is kindergarten, as Paul says. And we are going to be ready for that new life. Meditate on that truth the next time you face your own mortality or the mortality of a loved one. Our family went through a very difficult time over the last month where our youngest son, was diagnosed with something on his liver. And we had to, of course, go to God in prayer and ask for God to be there. It ended up not being life-threatening. But the experience that we all have in those moments is one of, in fact, trusting in God with those we love that this is not the end, whatever the outcome of that diagnosis or experience might be. We are forever with God. For we are beloved of God. We are born into his family. And we belong with him. Death does not win because Jesus came at Christmas. Jesus came to bring peace. And he comes to bring reconciliation in this warring and broken world. There, there is no doubt in anybody's mind that this world is broken. It is broken. The only question that is asked is what or who can fix it? We often place that expectation on presidents that we expect if we could just elect the right one, then peace on earth would come. Or we place it on scientists if they could simply discover how to stop this dying experience, then they could save us. Or we place it on psychologists thinking that if they could heal the human heart, they could change this, this self-centered, narcissistic self-absorption that so causes us to, to find it difficult to love and where we separate out and, and want to kill them or keep them away. 
But the truth is that none of these human beings, no matter how intelligent, thoughtful, charismatic they are, none of them can change the human heart. None of them can change human society. Only Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's refining fire can change you and me into people not only who are reconciling here in these few years we have, but to live together in peace in the eternal realm of God and in his great kingdom. It is that place of peace and reconciliation that Jesus Christ came to give. Now it's our responsibility as Christians to keep the Christ, all that we've talked about, all that's described in this hymn and Colossians, this wonderful Christology, our understanding of who Christ is. It's our responsibility not only to keep it in Christmas, that we celebrate Christ in our Christmas, but in our Christianity, that we not allow our Christianity to be diluted in some kind of form or to become just a religion that we practice, but rather it become the true place where God is at work in his transforming power in his life. It does not work for us to point our finger at anyone else and say they are leaving Christ out of anything. It is ours to bring Christ into the world, our families, our hearts and our minds in holistic and transformative ways. Now, I don't know if everyone who is here has allowed Jesus Christ, this living Lord, to have access to your heart and access to your mind. If you have not, I want to encourage you, this, this Christmas season will change everything for you, not just in this short time, but in the eternal time to which all of us are headed. And so if you have not, I would encourage you to say a very simple kind of prayer. Put it in your own words, but allow it to say something like this. Jesus, Come into my heart. Come into my head. Refine me. Cleanse me. Forgive me. Let me be filled with your new life. And let me live as you live. Let's spend time with God.